Our Bible reading tonight is from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So I'll give you a few seconds to find that. It should be on page 961 of the Pew Bibles. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Well, thanks, Nick, for, thanks, Nick, for reading that. Um, and if you want to keep your Bibles open, we're going to be looking at this passage. Because the passage that Nick read um, is just one small scene in a much bigger drama. It's the story of Paul the Apostle, who planted a church in Ephesus. And he's written a letter to his younger co-worker, Timothy, uh, because he left Timothy to stay on in Ephesus after Paul left. He left him there to appoint leaders and to deal with a group of false teachers who were leading people astray. But the letter isn't just to Timothy. This isn't a private letter. It's a letter that's designed to be read out loud in the hearing of the whole church. A public commissioning of Timothy to do his work. So that everyone knows that Timothy's authority to lead and to teach has the backing of Paul himself. It actually takes the form of a mandate letter, which is common enough back at the time when you couldn't just pick up the phone to check whether someone was legit. And Paul is saying to his church in Ephesus, pay attention to Timothy, what he says and what he does because he's acting with my authority. And it's an authority that ultimately comes from God. Heavy stuff, right? A little bit like what's going on here tonight. Except in a confusing twist, I, Timothy, will be playing the role of Paul. (laughs) You here are going to be the Ephesian church. Uh, And Matthew, uh, Reverend White, has been cast in the role of Timothy. Are you following me so far? Paul, Ephesian church... Timothy, okay? Okay, so what gives me the right to be Paul in this scenario, you might think? And that's a fair question, uh, because in our Baptist uh, form of congregational government, the answer to this is typically messy. For a start, just over two decades ago, I was Timothy in this little scene, 
where Ange slash Paul spoke at my ordination in front of this very congregation. Now, some of you might have been there, and for others of you, your parents were there. And so I suppose Timothy is eventually get old enough to become Paul's. This is kind of the closest thing we have uh, in Baptist churches to apostolic succession, so kind of enjoy. The second reason that, Matt, uh, that I get to be Paul is that Matt has asked me to be, as someone who's been part of his journey to this point. Because it's been a joy and an honour to be able to teach Matt at Morling, uh, to see his progress, as it says in verse 15. And so in that capacity tonight, I represent our denomination. I represent the Baptist family of churches here in New South Wales and the ACT, as Matt is ordained as a Baptist minister. And yet the main reason I get to play Paul in this scene is simply because I'm speaking tonight on behalf of this church on behalf of Ange and the deacons and the members here at Nawi Baptist Church, I get to remind you that Matt has been set apart to do God's work, to teach God's word, to provide God's shepherd-like care for you all, because you, in that curious, democratic, congregationally governed way, have called him to do so. In other words, I'm representing all of you, reminding Matt of what you and God have called him to do. I'm doing it out loud, publicly, so that you can make clear to yourselves that Matt is authorised to lead and to teach and to care for you. Still with me? Told you it was messy. So, anyway, with that behind us, what is, what is it that Paul slash me is commissioning Timothy slash Matt to do before the assembled church? Let's have a look at chapter 4 of 1 Timothy in a bit more detail. Because the first thing we see Paul tell Timothy to do is to point out false teaching to name it as false, and to explain why it's false. Paul begins, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So we're not talking minor disagreement in doctrinal practice here. We're talking about things that entice people to abandon their commitment to the way of Jesus. Big stuff. Core gospel stuff. Stuff that impacts our salvation. He says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. He's saying that they've, been, they've strayed so far that their consciences are now numb, uh, like a, a cauterized wound, dead to the correction of God's spirit. Now, back in the Ephesian church, the nature of the false teaching there was quite specific. You might have picked that up during the reading, right? Uh, this is how Paul describes it. He says, they forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, what's the background to this? We're actually not really sure. Uh, could have been influenced by a particular brand of over-spiritualized Greek philosophy, one that de devalued the material and physical world of marriage and food, something which God created and said was good. Or it could have come from the Jewish direction, uh, old covenant followers of Jesus who wanted to preserve their special status uh, as the people of God. And so they were forbidding people to marry non-Jews so they wouldn't end up eating food that wasn't kosher. Which one was it? I don't know. And I don't think it particularly matters to us since we are not living in first century Ephesus. But either way, Paul points out why it's wrong. He says, for everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving because it's consecrated by the word of God and prayer. He's saying that God created us as embodied material beings 
and he said that it was good. And because of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, he could declare not just all foods clean, but all peoples clean. So in either case, what the false teachers seem to have been doing is adding something to the gospel message that we are made right with God through faith alone. It's imposing an extra requirement, which is what makes it very much a salvation issue. And while the particulars may have changed, the basic motivation hasn't. Because most of the time, whenever false teaching arises in the church, it's out of a desire to fit in with some element of the surrounding culture. Back in Ephesus, it might have been the desire to fit in with Greek philosophers who thought that the embodied nature of the Christian hope was so uncool and backwards. Or to fit in with their Jewish community of origin for whom the Christian way of life violated their social norms. For us today, there's still that temptation to fit in with our own society, isn't there? Or to fit in with the culture of our own particular tribe within that society. Might be greed and materialism. Might be its obsession with body image and popularity. Or its nationalism and racism. Or its take on sexuality and gender. As Paul puts it in his second letter to Timothy that Ange just read earlier, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. But instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And so they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. The motivation for false teaching, to say what our itching ears want to hear, to say what our society's itching ears want to hear, that hasn't changed. And neither has its methodology. How Paul describes them is significant. He says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. What's that about? Well, myths, in this sense, likely refers to the practice of Greek-educated Jews who would uh, retell the stories of the Old Testament, adding in details and embellishments and speculation, mostly to kind of try and bring those stories from the Bible into line with Greek philosophy, to make them say what their culture wanted them to say rather than what God was saying. And old wives' tales isn't the most helpful phrase in the 21st century, I'll grant that. Couldn't find a different way of translating it. But it was a typical first century way of describing views that are ill-informed. Back in a world in which most women were not allowed to be educated, because the patriarchy. And the point is, people play games with scripture, both then and now. Distorting them to make them say what they want them to say, to fit the spirit of the age rather than the spirit of God who inspired them. Matt's job as a good minister of Christ Jesus, his job is to point out when this is happening for your sake so you won't be led astray. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you followed. So when Matt warns you that the Bible condemns pride and greed, that it teaches us not to worry about chasing the status and the security that the rest of our world worries about, but to seek first the kingdom of God, listen to him. When Matt warns you that the Bible commands us to love those who are not from our tribe, that it teaches us to reach across ethnic and cultural and socioeconomic lines to care for everyone, then listen to him. When Matt warns you that the Bible commands us to repent from all kinds of sin 
and that we don't get to decide for ourselves what we want sin to be, but trust the one who created us to know what's best for us. Listen to him. And this is important. Sometimes it can be a matter of spiritual life and death. It's worthy of our attention and effort. Rather than worrying so much about gaining acceptance from the world around us, our focus should be on pleasing God. Paul says, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, he says, train yourself to be godly. So physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Physical training has, is good. It has some value, says Paul. Personally, I wouldn't know. But from what I heard, physical training can be useful. You can, like, lift things, uh, open jars, um, climb stairs while still breathing normally. Uh, look, I should have researched this bit more, I know. But you know, you're looking after your health, and you might even extend your lifespan. But still, you die, right? And so your six-pack and my, well, it's more of a goon bag at this point, they both end up <laughs> in the same shaped wooden box. It's so unfair. But it's the same with striving to fit in with our wider world, with what our itching ears want to hear. Might have benefits in this life, less opposition, more acceptance, being able to do what feels good for you. But still, at the end of it, you die. And what then? As Paul says, training to be godly, striving to fit in with God's plans for our lives, that has benefit not just for this life, but also for the life to come. That's the difference. And that's why it's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And that's why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Matt's job is firstly to train himself in godliness. And while he does that, he's also to be your spiritual trainer. In verse 11, Paul says to Timothy, command and teach these things. So I say, okay, Matt, command and teach the word of God. Right? That's the job you're being commissioned to do. Don't, look down on it, sorry, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Now looking out, you're not that young compared with this congregation, are you? Uh, but a little earlier here on Sunday, the maths works out quite differently. Uh, so how can a young man of 30 teach and lead those who are perhaps many decades older? The answer is pretty simple. It's just not that easy to do. Firstly, teach God's word, not your own. Because the Bible is older than the average age, even at the 11 a.m. service. And hi to anyone who is joining us from there. But secondly, don't, make sure you don't just teach it. Make sure you live it out. And that is where you will win the respect of all ages. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. This teaching by example was fundamental in the ancient world. Because if you were a philosopher, no one would take you seriously unless you lived according to your own philosophy, unless you practiced what you preached. Uh, take the, uh, the school of philosophers called the Cynics, for example. They adopted very unusual lifestyles. Because their teaching was that we shouldn't care about the approval of others. You, know, you do you and all that. And so many of them would deliberately break social norms in order to prove they didn't need the approval of anyone else. Uh, some to the extent of urinating and defecating in public. 
These days, of course, we call them footballers, but back in the day, it was a respectable <laughs> philosophy. Right? You need to practice what you preach. So, Matt, you are to teach by example. Not just with words, just like people won't respect a personal trainer who is out of shape. The church is not going to respect you if you're not living out what you teach. And church, you're to listen to what Matt says and see what he does. How does he respond when challenged? How does he stand up for the truth? How does he show love and practical concern for those who are struggling? How does he look after and prioritize his family as husband and father? Until I come, says Paul, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Again, it's almost a broken record, isn't it? We get a reminder that God's Word should be central, that God's Word should be the basis of what is taught here every Sunday. Hopefully you'll see that right now I'm practicing what I preach, going line by line through this passage from God's Word rather than just giving my top tips on being a pastor. So Matt, devote yourself to the task of reading and explaining God's Word, to challenging this church to obey God's Word, to live and understand their lives in light of it. Uh, be diligent in this, as Paul says in verse 15. And Matt, I know you do this. Keep at it. Church, I want you to know, as someone who trains preachers, I want you to know that you have a diligent student of the Scriptures. Because not all pastors are. But Matt's a bit of an engineer, as you know, and he brings that to his preaching. Did I correctly understand what the Bible's saying and doing here? Did I get the application exactly right? Did I explain it as clearly and efficiently as I could? Each week, he's like his own Formula One race team, you know, tuning the sermon during free practice and sending it out on the track again to see how it, if it runs better. So that by, by the time we get to Sunday and it's lights out and away we go, you are getting someone who has done his absolute best for his God. You are getting a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I know that's your passion. Don't ever lose that. Don't ever lose your desire to rightly handle the word of God and give him your best. And allow him to work by his spirit, through your words here each week. Because Matt is not laboring in his own strength. He's not working hard at something that he decided in his own mind to do. Now his role here has been commissioned by God, has been enabled by God. Verse 14, Paul says, Don't neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. About half an hour ago, when the church leadership laid hands on Matt... I don't think anything magical happened. There was no power zapping out of me, did you feel? You know? uh, kind of just like with baptism, this is a symbol. Right? Symbolise the fact that we as a church believe that God has gifted Matt for the role of pastor and that he is the one who has called Matt into this role. This is not just a decision by a bunch of uh, humans at a church members meeting or at the Baptist Assembly a few months ago, although at one level it is that. It's also a conviction that God is behind this, that God intends this to happen. That God has given Matt to the work of ministry. And in the first instance, that ministry is to lead and to teach and to care for all of you. So I say again, Matt, do not, do not neglect your gift. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and your doctrine closely. As I said before, both how Matt lives and what he teaches are important. 
And both have eternal consequences. He says, persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Or to put it another way, stick with Jesus to the end. I keep on living like Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Keep on holding to the truth of his word. And trust that he will remain faithful to his promise to persevere with you and bring your salvation to completion. And not just your salvation, but all of those he has given into your care. So at this point, you probably should be quite rightly feeling the weight of this task, aren't you? Yeah? He's sort of sinking in his seat there. At the same time, you should also be feeling the support of the one who is going to continue to equip and strengthen you for it. So I'm going to leave you with the final words from 1 Timothy 6, where Paul says, and I'll say it to you, but you, Matt, man of God, flee from sin and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus who, testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. And to him be honour and might forever. Amen.